this summer we've been studying together uh, the letter to the church at Philippi and, and just a, a little bit of a refresher uh, that started with Paul describing himself as a prisoner and as a slave in writing to the holy ones at Philippi, the holy ones, the saints at a specific place that really existed and that were real people. And so I take great comfort in that because it feels like this letter is also to us who are real people in a real place and because of Christ and God's gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, we can be known and know ourselves as holy ones. So uh, in this, we last week we shared in this this master story that we've kind of try, been trying to hold in the back of our minds this whole time. Uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, this master story of, of uh, Jesus' descent and emptying and, and also his being raised by God and being proclaimed as the Lord of all. So uh, today we'll continue on uh, in chapter 2, verses uh, 12 through 18, if you'll join with me. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Pray with me. Uh, Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you um, that you um, give us your word um, in the Bible and, and that you gave us your word made flesh in Jesus that we might hear from you and know you um, know what you're doing in this world and in our lives and, and what you're calling us to. Uh, open our ears um, that we might hear from you and open our lips that our mouths might declare your praise. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we said, we, we're just on the tail end of this master story of Jesus. This master story of Jesus who was in the very form of God but did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. And we have even these little scripture cards each week that I, I'd urge you to pick up to help uh, memorize parts of this letter and parts of this story. And Paul uh, is talking to these people at Philippi and he's, he's, he's encouraging them. He's saying, if you have any of these Things, these things that would make you unified, these things that would make you uh, one with each other. He assumes they've, they've shared in the spirit. They, he assumes that they're unified in Christ. And he, he then tells them that because that's so, you should have the same mindset. And then he goes on to define this mindset, not with like 
a program or not with a definition, but with a story, the story of Christ. He, he says you'll have this humble, emptying goal together so that you can be with each other and that God will be with you at the bottom. And then that you'll be filled with hope and that you'll reach for renewal and you'll reach for restoration, you'll reach for victory and vindication, and you'll have confident assurance that Christ will be revealed as the one in control of this world, even when things don't look that way or don't feel that way in your life. So Paul, the prisoner, Paul, the pastor, even Paul sometimes sounds like a parent, he urges them to keep going. I don't know who in the room needs like that. So if that's the case, you can just stay there on that and I'll keep talking and you can just stay there. But keep going is the message that Paul is saying here. It says, even as you've obeyed Christ through difficulty, and the Philippians are experiencing a lot of difficulty, because Christ also obeyed, you'll never out-obey Christ. And if you're found in Christ, that obedience actually means something, even if it hurts. You've, he, he's writing to them, and he's saying, you've, you've had to do this even without the benefit of my personal presence with you. And I can't help but think, uh, I'm not an expert on this, maybe you can ask Joe, or maybe you can ask Ben, about like first century letter writing, and, and like how hard it would be to like convey personal presence through writing letters from prison. Um, but I'd imagine it would be pretty hard. So they're having to do this without, without a coach, without someone by their side teaching them, showing them, encouraging them. He, said, he entreats them to keep it up, keep going. Having several small children, I, I think of the great theologian Dory who says just keep swimming right like that's that, that's that's the point of this and just keep swimming even if it feels like it's always upstream and there's never a downstream just keep going and so he he tells them this in the beginning of chapter two and then there's this shift there's this therefore again Paul compounds these therefores. He wants us to keep with him in the story, and he's going to keep pressing. He's going to keep challenging us. He says, and then he says, keep going, but he says, continue on with fear and with trembling, which doesn't seem like they're lacking fear and trembling in their situation. Um, I have a history uh, in ministry of working with sports ministry. A few, about a decade ago, I was involved in this ministry, and we would often do um, like sports chapel services for middle school football teams, which sounds exactly as awesome as it is. And if you can imagine, like Philippians is a great letter for that setting, and most messages like sound more like Philippians 4:13, "I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me." Right? This keep going on with fear and trembling is a terrible middle school football chapel message, right? Like, we should be pumping them up so that they can charge through a wall and not tell them to proceed with fear and trembling even as they work out their faith, their salvation. And so, I think there, there's parts of us, whether we're, whether we're young in the faith or whether we've been in the faith for a while that are, are kind of resistant to this idea of, of working out our faith with fear and trembling. 
part, part, parts of us are maybe anxious because it feels like, like the life of faith shouldn't be a life of work, that we should just receive this gift and, and anything that we try to do on top of that somehow diminishes it. But I don't think that's the point that Paul's trying to make here. I think instead he's trying to say that you don't have to work to get the salvation, but you sure better work it out. You, you better ride through the implications of the salvation that you've been given. And, and, and there's this kind of like active, passive dynamic that is happening in this grace that doesn't diminish grace. A couple of things that uh, kind of pictures of, of how how this kind of works itself out, I think the, the first that came to mind for me was the image of bread making. And I'm talking like uh, rising bread, not unleavened bread. This passive, active dynamic of, of surely working out that dough, kneading that dough, and, but also this process of letting that dough rest so it can passively rise from this yeast, this leaven that has been worked into it. Uh, I, I also think of of uh, this, this image that is actually in our passage about, about light. It says you, you'll be light to this crooked generation, shining like stars. And, and this idea that because light is light, because stars are stars, there's this, there's this, this inability to hide. Like light is going to shine. And light is especially going to shine in the midst of darkness. Like that's when it's at its best. And so there is this being, we're being made lights, we're being um, supplied with light, even if it's a reflective light. But then this passive uh, ability for us to just be, for us to, to work out the implications of our light and then to, just to shine, just to, to be there and to not hide it, to not resist it, and just to be. This fear and trembling, uh, the other things that I, I continue to, to kind of consider um, as I try to think concretely. I, for us reading the Bible, the, the main challenge, I think, for us to read the Bible is, is to make it concrete, to make it actually um, something that animates our lives and our vision of, of what God is calling us to do. I think that's how God is speaking. And so I kind of came up, if, if you'll if you'll bear with me, came up with like three case studies in my life, and, and hopefully this will jog and kind of encourage you to think of these kinds of case studies in your life uh, where you've worked out salvation, worked out your faith with fear and with trembling. Um, these might be things that you have experienced, or these might be things that, that you need to jump in, you need to get with the fear and with the trembling. The first one, I would say, and this is a, an experience, uh, an intimate experience over these last three years, is with church planting. Uh, planting a church in this building that you guys are all a part of is a fear and trembling process. Why? <laughs> because most church plants fail. <laughs> Why? Because a lot of people don't think church planting is a very good idea. And for good reason. Like, uh, I, think, I, I think a lot of what drives people to plant churches comes out of ego and pride or even cynicism that, that the churches that exist aren't doing a good job, so we need to do a better job. And, and we might have this 
great idea that actually works for God. Um, there's stats for why church planning should be a fear and trembling process. Like the fact that um, not just church plants, but 90% of startups fail and uh, about 68% of church plants fail within the first four years. So like, it's not a very successful enterprise to jump into. Um, three quarters of the people in your, in your core team probably won't be around in two years and that actually played out with us. So like, there's this like, oh, it's probably not gonna work and my friends are probably not gonna hang around, you know? Um, and, I, and I think there, there are some real um, actual criticisms of this that, that beg for this kind of fear and trembling approach. Like the idea that planning churches uh, has often been described as like colonizing. Uh, uh, there, there's an amazing um, blog post called uh, Church Planting Plantations. Um, or urban church planning plantations. Like, I think when we first got here uh, three years ago, three plus years ago, there was a lot of skepticism uh, from some of our neighbors, even, even the ones that greeted us, uh, was kind of this feeling of like, it's okay that you're here, but we don't think you'll be around here very long, you know? Um, when we, when we first started here, the church that had met here that closed its doors four Easter's ago, Lakewood Baptist Church, a historic church in this site, had two um, kind of convictions for who, how they wanted this building to be used. One was that it would be used as a house of worship. The other is that it would not be used as a site, a site that, that would then be outgrown or tossed aside when a congregation got too big. They wanted this place to be a place of worship and a place where a worshiping community would care about the neighborhood. And so we proceed with fear and with trembling. And I think the form that that fear and trembling took place and is taking place for us, um, and this is not just me, this is you all too, is with patience, is with um, dependence, like understanding how big and how challenging and how in some cases insurmountable a task is to, to start uh, a body of Christ that, that loves each other but also continues to open our door and our arms to this neighborhood and the people who are hurting, people who have hurts that are greater than our ability to help with. Um, I, I think it, it also takes like massive creativity and generativity to, to use small resources and let them go a, a far way to, to build a community out of young families and people from the neighborhood and grad students and a lot of people who are, are only here for a short amount of time and we have a lot of turnover and we have so many Sundays where we bless and we send people and then that leaves us wondering, well, who's sending people to us, you know? Um, so we proceed with fear and with trembling, but we also proceed with this confidence in the middle of that, and this, this, this conviction that God has given us everything we need to worship him, to call people into that worship, to, to be held together by his spirit, and to flourish, and to promote flourishing, and that, that when, when we help other people, when we help our neighbors do better, and uh, seek justice, and walk humbly, that that helps us even if it doesn't directly stay here. That when we send people, that, that help, sending people helps us even if those resources don't stay here. 
I think that's a little bit of what it means to, to church plant with fear and trembling. My second case study is growing a healthy relationship, a healthy marriage. This is a fear and trembling thing, y'all. <laughs> like, for one, again, the stats are racked up against you, right? Like, between a third and a half of marriages these days end in divorce, that's just, that's a fact, and that's not a fact that's super different inside or outside of the church. Like, it just is. Um, and so, a lot of people abandon the idea of that and, and go for some sort of arrangement of perpetual singleness or serial monogamy or, or none of the above, you know? Um, I think in the last, even in the last five years, it's hit, it's hit really close to home to see close friends, college friends who got married and who you would think were completely um, immune to their marriage breaking or dissolving, breaking and dissolving, to see that firsthand and to feel that hurt and, and to see how strong and how prevalent that sin is in these lives of dear friends and also in my life. So I think fear and trembling in, in, in a relationship, in any relationship, but especially in, in like a committed marriage relationship involves this hearkening back to that master story in which we see Christ emptying himself. That's how Christ showed his faithfulness to us. So if, if we're going to attempt to try to be faithful to someone else, there's going to be a lot of emptying. And it's going to be a consistent and a, a perpetual emptying that will double down on our limits. So, so much of difficulty in marriage is um, you come to find some limits that you didn't know that you had that get so nicely reflected when you're trying to be with someone else and instead of, of um, shoring them up or instead of exploring them more deeply, you kind of cover them up or set them aside. Those become strongholds that can't be touched. But if a marriage is going to work and if it's going to happen with fear and trembling, you're going to have to live into those weaknesses, into those shortcomings. You're, you're going to have to, to to build commitment and trust. You're going to have to be committed to learning. Uh, I think one of the one of the main stressors to marriage is the fact that both spouses are are constantly changing, but each one thinks they know the other one down pat. They know what they're going to say. They know what they're going to do, and there's no room for continuing to learn your partner, continuing to grow with them, continuing to help them grow. I also think, again, there's this fear and trembling means recognizing the massive local resources that you have to strengthen your marriage. This is other friends who are married. This is other friends who are single. This is friends who are struggling and celibate. This is other people who are proceeding with fear and trembling in where God has them. And those are only resources that we often go it alone and reject those resources for our own relationships. It takes a lot of humility to, to recognize that. My third case study for fear and trembling is this, many of you know about this uh, adoption process that we're in the middle of. And especially if ours is a transracial adoption process, that means we'll have an African-American child in our very white family. Uh, 
And again, there's stats and there's, there's just massive forces that seem like this is not a good idea and things are not gonna go well here. Like in 1972, the National Association of Black Social Workers issued a, a very incisive statement saying that they didn't think this sort of adoption was a good thing. And I understand why, especially in 1972. But then there's other stats that say that 63% of adopted children in the US are non-white. So the majority of adopted children are minority children. And that 40% of existing adoptive families have a kid who does not share a race with either one of the parents. So this is, this is common, this seems inevitable, but very challenging and difficult. So we proceed, Rach and I, and with y'all, with fear and with trembling. I think that means, again, being committed to learning, being committed to like the kind of humility that says we're going to screw up from the outset, but we're gonna stick in it and we're gonna learn and we're gonna love and we're gonna be patient for these things. We're gonna build up a network of people because this is too big for us. This is, we're, we're going to, to advocate along lines that we've never done before because it's never been personal. That even in this process, Rachel and I have learned how things that we, hunches that we had, things like the value of Medicaid and um, advocating for uh, black lives were important, but now they're personal. And so we proceed with fear and trembling because now we've all of a sudden taken on these massive things that have never been personal, that we've always been able to hold at arm's length or pick up or put down like when we wanted and how we wanted, but now they're gonna be ours. So we proceed with fear and trembling. And then, so if that's, if that's not a little daunting, uh, for Paul in this letter to, to tell these suffering people to proceed and, and work out their faith with fear and trembling. Then he shifts to this, this strange kind of moment, this strange kind of metaphor, and scholars kind of disagree with, with why he does this or what he's doing here. But he says in verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. He says, proceed with fear and trembling do everything without grumbling or arguing. And I think that's some of the value of this statement for us, uh, why this helps us in our, in our proceeding with fear and trembling, is that it connects us to this, this wider, huge, existing and ongoing story of God's presence and his intervention in the lives of God's people. Why does grumbling do that? Because grumbling is this massive resonant word for what God's people were doing in exile. After they had left Egypt, after Moses had brought them through, over the Jordan, away from, from Israel, um, th this is the landmark Passover event that forms a, God's delivered people. And then not too long in the desert, God's people are standing around and, and Exodus 16 says, that they were sitting around grumbling at Moses and grumbling at God. They said, this is chapter 16, verse 3 in Exodus. 
Oh, how we wish that the Lord had put us to death while we were still in the land of Egypt. There we could sit by pots, cooking meat, and eat our fill of bread. Instead, you've brought us out of the desert to starve this whole assembly to death. They grumbled in the desert. And then, after that, the Lord says to Moses, and this is why I think this is important, this is why I think Paul's doing this move here. After that, in verses 4 through 6, the Lord says to Moses, I am going to make bread rain down from the sky for you. The people who go out each day will gather just enough for that day. This is the give us this day our daily bread moment for them in exile. It says, in this way, I'll test them to see whether or not they will follow my instruction. It's going to test them to see if they'll be obedient. And then on the sixth day, when they measure out what they've collected, it will be twice as much as they collected in all the other days. Moses, said, Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, this evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is important for us because though they were in exile, though we might feel in exile, we're enabled to live thankful, responsive, hopeful lives. Lives that don't grumble, that don't look back. Lives that are aware of God's abundance, even in the midst of a wasteland. Even in the midst of massive scarcity, where our stomachs growl and then we grumble because of it, God says, I will rain down bread upon you. Later in that same narrative, they, they had quail coming out of their ears is what God, how God responds to their scarcity with his abundance. This is important for us because it tells us we can stop looking back at a place that no longer exists. You can only go forward into God's future, which he'll surprisingly continue to provide for you and bless you so that you can bless others. That was Israel's mission. That's what God's people, the church's mission is now. He will bless you so that you bless others. He'll bring you into the promised land and he'll give you rest. Rest even in the midst of restlessness. We talked about this in a mustard seed group the other night. The importance of rest in order to, to trust in a God who rests. Last night uh, at bedtime, Noah, um, who was very restless, turned to me and said, Dad... <laughs> Do God and Jesus, she always says God and Jesus. I don't, the spirit is implicit, I think. She says, Dad, do, do God and Jesus sleep? He's like, oh, girl, do they sleep, right? Like, even God, after creating the heavens and the earth and filling it and naming it and providing for it and shaping culture within it, even God rests. Even Jesus, who in the middle of a storm, like a storm in which, talking about fear and trembling, it says that his disciples, his friends on this boat in the middle of a storm were megaphobos, very afraid. And where do they find him? Sleeping. Like Jesus with rest in the middle of fear and lack and want and, and disaster. And so I think that's why rest, even and especially in the midst of struggle, in the midst of trial, 
rest becomes this gateway to joy and to peace and to hope. This is how Paul closes out this section of the letter. It says in 17 and 18, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So too you should be glad and rejoice with me. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. And he'll do this later in chapter four. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Like over and over and over obnoxiously. He says, joy is possible. So rejoice. Joy is possible, not outside of suffering, but inside of it. Joy and fear and trembling like belong together. Fear and trembling and joy right in the midst of each other. Exactly because of fear and trembling, because of trial, you will have joy. Because like Jesus who emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. Paul says, even if I'm poured out like a drink offering, every act of self-emptying that we perform, even if it's small, even if it's like a really small way that we empty ourselves, make ourselves nothing, every one of those acts gives God immense joy and can be the site of our own joy. That God's joy leads to our joy, leads to God's joy at infinitum. This makes our joy possible. This makes our joy durable, able to withstand, not depending on our circumstances, not giving up, not giving in. You see, like, all those case studies that I mentioned, there's ways to get joy in each of them without fear and trembling. Like, there's shortcuts, there's techniques, there's moves to make, there's books written on how to, how to church plant successfully, and, which is not necessarily faithfully, and, and presumably you can get a whole lot of joy by that success, but it leaves out fear and trembling. There's the same, there's techniques on how to fix your marriage. There's, I don't know if there's techniques techniques about adoption, but I'm sure there are blog posts that claim to know how to do it right. <laughs> Beware of those things. Fear and trembling. Enjoy. You don't give up. You don't give in. You don't, you don't take the path of least resistance. You don't seek out your quote, best life now. But even when it's hard, you somehow manage to be able to laugh at yourself or to laugh with others, to laugh at things that once seem so impossible, but God made them possible. That's what kids are really good at, is like um, the, they'll be amazed that the paper cut that they had several days ago is healed, and they'll bring it to you and say, God healed my finger. And it's like, yes, God did heal your finger. <laughs> Praise God, right? Like, um, that we can laugh and that we can be surprised and we can find joy in these little things that we normally would tend to grumble at, especially paper cuts. Grumble, grumble, right? Or because our stomachs are growling because we're not satisfied or we're not content or that we're more fearful of failure than like 
fearful of the Lord in a worshipful, reverential way. And we can even laugh at, like, these really hard, insurmountable things. I'd love to hear your case studies about these things that, like, you know without a doubt you're supposed to do, but you know without a doubt it's going to be hard or that you're probably not set up to do it right. <laughs> and so it, it's going to probably be the project for the rest of your life. You know those things? Those are exactly the places where you find joy, where you can laugh. I was going to name the sermon after this line in a Wendell Berry poem, but I did that two weeks ago. Uh, but, so, but, but I think this is the sort of joy encapsulated by this line when he says in the Mad Farmer poem, it says, expect the end of the world and laugh. Because laughter is immeasurable. It says, be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. I think that's what fear and trembling is. Being joyful, though you've considered all the facts and pressing on. Fear and trembling and joy comes not from insecurity, but from the assurance that God will vindicate in the end. But in the middle, it's going to be really hard. Fear and trembling and joy are this like, present outworking. We, God has worked in us, so we work out our future salvation, but because of this past thing that Jesus did once and for all for us. This, this life that Jesus lived, that he did not take the easy way out. Over and over and over, he refuses to take the easy way out. The beginning of his ministry is marked by a time in the desert and then a temptation in which he was given easy ways out that he over and over refused. Or his words that were filled with both grace and with truth. It's so easy to say all grace and, and to veer from the truth or vice versa. Or Christ's very body that was broken and his blood that was poured out for the joy set before him. That's what Hebrews said. The joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Will you guys, will you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this word that is not hovering above the ground, but, but hits, hits the road in each of our lives. We thank you for giving the resources that you've given us to proceed with fear and trembling. We thank you for working our salvation in us so that we can work it out. Give us courage to do that. Give us endurance. Give us friends that will join us in that. Friends that will, will feed back to us so that we know when, we, when we're giving in to temptation, when we're taking easy ways out, when we're not fearful or trembling enough, and, and let us be able to hear those words. Lord, continue to work joy into us like leaven into bread that you're kneading in our lives so it might produce something beautiful, something amazing for this world that, that you might bless us, that we might bless others. We thank you for all these things in the, 
the strong name of Jesus. Amen.